Blessed morning and uh, so uh, great joy again to see all of you in the house of the Lord and we truly want to worship the Lord together as people as, even as we listen to His Word. Last week we saw the sobering account of how David fell into sin from last week's sermon, how he committed adultery uh, with Bathsheba and committed murder. And this week we will see how the Lord confronted uh, David with his sin and how God restored him. Let's commit this time to the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and gracious Redeemer. Amen. David thought that he could get away with sin. He did all he could to cover up his initial sin that he committed with Bathsheba. But as Pastor Shen pointed out last week, Sin leads to sin. You need sin to cover up sin. And that process led David eventually to murder. No sin escapes God's notice. David might have thought that he has covered up his tracks well. David might have thought that as God's anointed, he might have been exempted from God's righteous standards. But God's favor and anointing does not bring immunity from God's righteous standards. God does not turn a blind eye to sin. Even the king would be subject to God's sovereign authority and righteous standards. David might have thought that as king, he could take steps to suppress override any suspicions or questions from the servants who arranged for his initial meeting with Bathsheba, protestations or questions from his commander, Joab, whom he ordered to put Uriah and a man in danger and got them killed, uh, could be overridden. Uh, Joab would have been possibly brought to bear to keep silent. In any case, who would dare challenge the authority of a king at the height of his powers. But David did not reckon with the Lord's sovereign presence. David forgot that while men and servants could be co-opted and coerced to comply with the king's authority, there is one whose authority is infinitely greater than any earthly king. One whose throne before all kings, all powers and authorities must bow down, must bow down and worship. Sin has a way of blinding even the best of us to the awesome holiness and sovereign authority of God. The word of the Lord says in uh, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and on the good. At every point along David's descent into adultery and murder in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it was possible for David to repent and turn aside from the path of sin and destruction. But David chose the desires of sin and the murderous cover-up. And the Lord was watching. At the end of uh, uh, chapter 7, the passage concludes this way, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This was the verdict that mattered the most despite all of David's attempts 
to bring resolution or to cover up the sin. In this first half of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, the passage for today, we see God confronting David with his sin in order to restore him. And the way God does this is not to minimize the gravity of sin, not to paper over the issue as an honest mistake, not to avoid the ugly realities of sin and the wages of sin. God brings confrontation, conviction, and the consequences of sin before bringing hope and restoration to David. God confronts David with the gravity of sin by having David pronounce the deserved judgment on himself. God does this by having Nathan the prophet present a case of an unjust man who exploits and devastates someone, someone weaker than him, someone who was helpless against the power of this unjust man. And David rightly condemns this unjust man to death, only to realize that this is the ugly, wicked reality of the sin that he, David himself, had committed against the Lord. This then brings conviction to David of his sin, and he repents and humbles himself before God. With that, God pronounces judgment on David as a consequence of sin, but showing mercy, not cutting off David from his covenant promises and condemning David to death as he deserved. Despite the heavy consequences of sin, God restores David. God shows redemptive grace in bringing out something good out of the devastation of sin. God promises to David, God's promises to David of establishing his throne and family line would still be preserved. The big idea for us today is that God's heart is to restore us from sin. And we're going to look at how God deals with sin in our lives and to bring about restoration by reflecting on the root of sin, the result of sin, and third, the restoration from sin. First, the root of sin. Sin takes root when we despise God. Now, we have noted a few times now in our sermon series that David was called a man after God's heart, in that David wholeheartedly followed God. He, he aligned himself with God's ways. We also saw previously in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God provided him with covenant promises, that David will always have someone on the throne. His line will be established. And David was awestruck and astonished at the unbelievable, undeserved goodness and promises of God to him. David and his family had a very promising future. But something happened. There was a shift in David's heart and affection and loyalty to the Lord. There was a momentary lapse in which David's heart and desires shifted away from the Lord to the trappings of power and authority that were in his hands. Instead of using what God had blessed him with to fully carry out God's calling for him as king of the nation, David seems 
to have become complacent and idle, as Pastor Shen pointed out last week. David seems to have focused on himself, what he wanted, what he could command, what he could enjoy, without regard to what the Lord wanted from him. We see this hint in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But David remained in Jerusalem. David's first lapse is that he's not doing what a king should do. What a, the king of Israel should do in leading out his army to fight Israel's battles. It is perhaps a hint that uh, David's heart is not fully aligned with God's heart for him at that particular moment. David could have been complacent at the height of his powers and royal authority. In the past, David fought tooth and nail with his men, sharing the hardships and danger of the battlefield. Now his success was such that he could send up mighty men to do his battles for him, to do the fighting for him on his behalf. In sinning with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, David did what many powerful men in powerful positions have done. He did what he wanted because he could. In his path to sin, David somehow lost the awareness of God's presence, constant presence in his life. His lust and desires overwhelm the affections of his heart to God and to God's ways. In his position of privilege and authority, perhaps David started to despise any constraints that the Holy Spirit would have placed on him, on his actions, on his behavior. He certainly forgot how much God had blessed him, how God has established him and secured the throne for him so that he can be a king after God's heart. And when David forgot to honor all that God had done for him and is or was at that time still doing for him, David's heart began to despise God. It was shockingly easy for David, a man after God's heart, to start to despise God and the things of God. He may not even be, have been aware of the fact that he was despising God, but it was a matter of having his heart fixed on what he wanted and desired without reference to God. He was king, and he had the power and means to get Bathsheba, and so he did. But his actions betrayed the fact that in doing so, David despised all that God stood for. All that God valued, David dishonored and despised because his attention and desires were shifted from God to his self-centered sense of entitlement. And God confronted David with the root cause of his sin in the following verses. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Now therefore the sword will never leave or depart from your house 
because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. By doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The root of sin starts with despising God's ways and grows to full-blown rebellion against God's commands. In the Garden of Eden, the serpent tempts Eve by playing on her doubts and inciting a sense of despising God's restriction for them not to eat of the fruit of the tree. In Genesis 3.5, this is how the serpent incites Eve. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Essentially, the serpent was telling Eve, God wants to hold you back. He wants to keep you ignorant. He doesn't want you to be as good and wise as he. This seed of despising God's commands leaves leads Eve to see the fruit as highly desirable and enticing. What is the harm? Why wouldn't God allow for such a thing that looks so good and produce something that is so desirable, the knowledge of good and evil? And so Eve took the fruit, ate, and gave it to Adam. And they forgot all the good things that God had already provided them, all the, the beauty and the provision of the garden, which they had freely and stumbled on the one thing that God told them not to do. They despised their intimate, unbroken relationship with God by believing the serpent's lie that God was holding them back from their full potential. David had his privileges as king. Moreover, God had not denied him whatever that is good. But David stumbled on the one thing that he shouldn't have done. He despised everything that God had done in his life by going after the one thing that his heart desired, another man's wife. But not just the wife of any other man, wicked as though that may be, but the wife of one of his most loyal soldiers and warriors, Uriah. One of his mighty men, numbered among the bravest of the brave of Israel's army. And because he resorted to sin after sin leading up to murder, David showed utter contempt to the Lord's face. Some may see, say with relief that, uh, well, we never committed any murder and adultery like David. But the fact is that despising God's ways and commands starts from the heart. If I may paraphrase a little bit uh, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, we're well, having a sermon series on Matthew, but let me just preempt you. Uh, this is what, how Jesus warns the people. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I tell you, whoever is angry with a brother will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults a brother or sister with contempt, like you worthless fool, is in danger of the fires of hell. To despise or hold in contempt a fellow believer is to despise God's ongoing redemptive grace for that person. 
Again, Jesus goes to the right, right into the heart of adultery by saying, any man who looks lustfully at a woman with ungodly desires has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In this and other ways, sin takes root when we start to despise God or God's ways. And all of us, all of us are guilty in one degree or another to these. Why can't I have what another has? I feel I'm more deserving. Why does God seem to bless my colleague, my friend or my family member more than mine? Why does God allow me to suffer this way? And so on. But when our hearts are open and aligned before God, we will trust and obey Him with joy and faith. We will treasure what God has done for us and is still doing for us as we occupy ourselves with living for God by faith through His grace. And so as we enter into any time of trial, any season of temptation, any period of difficulty, hold on to what God has already blessed you with. Do not despise what God has given you and understand that God is still working around you. So here's our first uh, takeaway. Be occupied with what God has called you to do in Christ and leave no room for sin, sin to take root. So don't worry uh, what people, other people have or seem to have, what other people are doing. Focus on what God has given you and I to do and to hold on to His blessings in our lives. Second, the result of sin. The wages of sin is death. Psalms 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, of God's throne. That means God rules heaven and earth with righteousness and justice as irrevocable governing principles. In fact, God's character is defined by righteousness and justice. And this is, in fact, how God wants His people to know and understand Him. In, in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24, we read, But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, de declares the Lord. And so as king, David was called to rule with kindness, justice, and righteousness as a reflection of the Lord who put him there on the throne. By his actions of adultery, murder, and betrayal, David failed to represent God's kindness, justice, and righteousness. But this is not just a failure in leadership. It is also sinning directly against God's laws and commands. By adultery, David destroyed a marriage and the family life that Uriah could have had with Bathsheba. By outright murder, he robbed his loyal servant of his life and all the potential that his life held, not to mention all the other soldiers who were killed when David put them in danger together with Uriah, and a few of them were killed. What is God's justice according to His righteous standards? 
God's justice demands life for life. But God is also a God of mercy. God's mercy is the other side of God's justice. And so by God's mercy, David would not be put to death as he deserved. When confronted with his sin, David immediately repented. He repented and acknowledged his sin. In Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, David confesses, I have sinned against the law. In his mercy, David, uh, God had already provided for David's pardon. Nathan, the prophet, already carried the word of forgiveness with him at the same time that he carried the word of God's accusation against David. So great is God's mercy. And so with David's confession, Nathan replied in uh, verse 13, the Lord has taken away your sin, you are not going to die. Nonetheless, there will be consequences to David's sin. God's mercy does not mean that God's justice is put aside. God is still a God of justice and righteousness. It is God's sovereign right to pardon and forgive sin, but God will not let justice be put aside as well. God pronounces His judgment on David. First, His family line will be now marked by rebellion and death. In chapter 12, verse 11, 10 to 11, the Lord decrees that the sword will never depart from David's house. There will be violence now in his family line. There will be heartbreaking deaths and violence in his family. There will also be rebellion with one close to David who will bring calamity and disaster upon David. We will see how this comes true in the following chapters in uh, 2 Samuel. Also, the son that Uriah's wife bore to David will die. Because David destroyed the family life that could have been Uriah's, trouble will come to David's family line. The punishment of death that should have been on David fell to his newly born son. God's divine punishment is not to be taken lightly. We stagger at the weight of God's sentence. But God's divine punishment is always just. God does not delight in punishment. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 33, we read that He does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. The fact is that without God's mercy, David and his family would have been destroyed and cut off completely. God would have every right to revoke his covenant promises to David. And the course of the nation's history would have been very different. David would no longer establish a line of kings from whom Jesus would later claim the ultimate fulfillment to rule on the throne forever. How is God's unfailing mercy reconciled with God's perfect justice? This way, God limits 
the full extent of His divine judgment until the time when God's own Son is sent to take the full weight of God's righteous judgment on sin upon Himself as He hung from the cross. David's son died in judgment for David's sin. But God sent His Son, His one and only beloved Son, to die for all the sins ever committed, past, present, future. The whole weight of God's perfect justice was laid upon God's perfect Son so that God's unfailing mercy can flow to all who believe. And so David and his family bore a heavy price for sins, for his sins. But David himself was spared from the full extent of God's divine judgment. Today, we see the consequences of sin in the lives of families, communities, and nations. The effects of senseless killings and murders continue to take lives and devastate families. The effects of adultery and betrayals continue to destroy marriages and family lives. Harsh and bitter words continue to break down families and friendships and tear down a person's worth. We must never take sin lightly or underestimate the repercussions of sin. If we do sin, we come immediately to confess and repent before the Lord. And if there any offence or dispute cause, be the one to seek forgiveness and reconciliation with the other party. We must not let sin linger or delay repentance by any kind of self-justification or denial. But although the consequences of sin are serious, we also believe that God is merciful, that He can restore us, heal us, and others from sin through His Son, Jesus Christ, something that we will look at next. But the key takeaway for now is that sin has serious, unforeseen, unimaginable, eternal consequences, and only Jesus Christ can redeem us completely from sin. Third, Restoration from sin. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, as we sang in worship earlier. Taken from Psalm chapter 51, which we know that David used in his repentance before the Lord. And so David repented before the Lord and acknowledged his sin. But even in his sin, God knew David's heart. And as I said, he sent word of forgiveness through Nathan the prophet at the same time that David was confronted with sin. We also saw that God is a God of both justice and mercy. God's justice is covered by His mercy, yet God's mercy does not leave God's justice undone. Nonetheless, the whole of Scripture testifies to God's desire to restore and redeem His people from sin. God's heart is to extend mercy so that the one who repents and turns to Him can be fully restored. In Psalm chapter 103, we see the absolute beauty and grace of God's heart. 
The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbour His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As James chapter 2, verse 13 puts it, mercy triumphs over judgment. If God executed justice alone, none of us would survive. But God's mercy creates the space where the person who repents and turns to Him can have a fresh start, a renewed covenant relationship with Him. And this is what David experienced. After repenting and receiving God's judgment, David and Bathsheba conceived another child. This time, Bathsheba gave birth to a son who must, have, who, must given them, who must have given them a sign of God's renewed blessing and grace, perhaps because the baby was full of robust health. They gave him the name Solomon, which means his, that is Yahweh's, restoration or peace. The birth of a healthy boy was surely a source of joy and comfort to David and Bathsheba after the trauma of the previous loss. But more than that, Solomon signified a, a new hope, a sense of reconciliation and peace with God. And God graciously confirmed His love and favour to David. God turned His love on this newborn child. God gave him a name called Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord. Now, this shows us the incredible, astonishing depth of God's mercy and grace in restoring us from sin. David and Bathsheba's first relationship was sinful and brought judgment upon David's family. The first relationship was under divine judgment. But now after judgment and restoration, God restored peace and love to David and Bathsheba and his family. In fact, if you read 2 Samuel chapter 12, the first half of chapter 12, Bathsheba is never mentioned by name. When David is being confronted with sin, he's always Uriah's wife. This is what you did. This is not your wife. That first relationship is under divine judgment. It's always Uriah's wife. But after the birth of Solomon, the scripture says for the first time, Bathsheba, David's wife. After restoration, you renew your identity in God. From our human and often judgmental reasoning, we will likely say that, you know, David's and Bathsheba's relationship is, um, is, should be forever stained with the sin. Or even if we accept that God extended mercy and forgiveness, 
we will not expect God to bless in such an abundant way. We would likely color David and Bathsheba with the stain of their sin. How can anything good come from this relationship? The last thing we would have expected is God looked upon their second child together and said that this is my beloved and sent Nathan the prophet to tell David Bathsheba that this was the Lord's name for him. Humanly, we think that it's enough to get mercy, to be spared the full extent of the punishment. But God goes further than that. Even though there are consequences of sin, God is able to bring restoration and redemptive grace to any situation to give us a fresh start. This is the picture of how God's restoration looks like. The peace of God and the love of God. The peace of a renewed, reconciled relationship with God. And the love of God's unfailing love bestowed on those He graciously restores. Think of the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. The son who betrayed and despised his father's love realized that if he were to return back, all he could hope for and expect is to be accepted back as a servant. That's, that's the best he could expect, to work and live as a hired worker. Instead, his father received him back and restored him as a son and gave him a new robe and identity as a restored son. This is the type of forgiveness, love and restoration. This type of grace can only point us to the greatest re restoration to be revealed through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Previously, we saw that God limits the full extent of God's judgment, His punishment, and overlook the seriousness of sin because of His mercy in the times before Christ. But then the question asked was, how then can God's justice be perfect if He overlooked sin? And praise be to God, it is when God's Son, Jesus Christ, came that God's perfect justice and God's everlasting mercies could have full effect. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, we read, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, where through the shedding of His blood, to be received by faith. That Greek term, sacrifice of atonement, actually points back to the Old Testament law, where they had this mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, and where sacrifices of blood came to in, in terms of offering as an atonement for the sins of the people. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, He left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So at the cross, Christ became the perfect, complete sacrifice of atonement that cleanses us from sin and removes God's wrath and punishment on sin. In other words, the full extent of God's divine punishment was laid upon Christ in our place. The punishment that was supposed to be on us was placed on Christ instead. 
and God's perfect justice was carried out to its fullest extent on the cross for our sakes. When we believe in Christ as our Lord and Saviour, we are no longer under condemnation, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, is this a partial or temporary forgiveness until the next time we sin? Or partial redemption where we have to earn our salvation to make it complete? No. This is a full, perfect, once and for all, redemptive sacrifice that Christ underwent for all who would believe in Him. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 says, For by one sacrifice He made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Notice that we are made perfect forever while still being made holy. There is an ongoing process where God's Spirit works in the lives of believers to make us holy. We put, we call, sometimes we call it sanctification, right? That is to be transformed, uh, to reflect Christ in us. And this is a lifelong process. We are not made perfect overnight, but God's Spirit continually works in us. But the first part of the verse says that we are already perfect. In what sense? Perfect in the sense of make, being made whole and complete in the saving grace of God. Meaning, when you believe in Christ, you don't have partial salvation. You don't get maybe 70% saved and maybe 30% you have to earn your way through, make sure you, you kind of comply. Or that you have to be somehow under the, the old covenant of the law of Moses. No, the good news is that our salvation is full and complete. You no longer live under God's divine punishment or condemnation. You are now free by His grace and powered by His Spirit to live righteously before God, not under the law, but under grace. And this grace pronounces peace pronounces peace to you as your sins are forgiven at the feet of the cross. Grace that says, you are the beloved. You are my beloved, God saves. Loved by the Lord. No matter what happened in the past, if you are in Christ, you have peace with God and you are dearly loved by God. That is the measure of God's abundant grace. His undeserved favor and blessing. But it is also a grace that empowers us to say no to ungodliness and ongoing sin and to say yes to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord as He, as he guides you in your new life in Christ. I'd like to close down by praying for us. And if you have never fully received Christ into your heart as Lord and Savior, I'd like to invite you to open your heart to the Lord even at this moment and receive Christ in faith today. Today is the day of your salvation. But if you are already a believer and you're still struggling with sin or live under a sense of condemnation, today is the day that you need to hear 
God saying, peace, and my beloved, you are loved by the Lord. The old life of sin is gone and done away with. Come fully to live your new life in Christ. Let's come before the Lord. If you are opening up your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time now, I'd like to invite you to pray after me. Heavenly Father, I come to you a broken sinner. I confess my sins before you. I want to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I believe that He took away my sin on the cross. I believe that You raised Him from the dead so that I may have resurrection and life in Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'd like to also pray for you if you're struggling with sin or living under a sense of condemnation. Let's come before the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, you know every one of us. You know our weaknesses. You know what we are struggling with. You know the burdens we bear. Father, we acknowledge that many times we live with a sense of self-righteousness and self-entitlements. In many ways, Lord, we dishonour what you have done for us or we despise what you have already blessed us with. Father, we repent and confess our sin before you. Cleanse us from our sin and restore unto us the joy of your salvation. Lord, for those of us who are struggling with sin, I pray for the fresh outpouring of your righteous spirit that helps us overcome every device of the evil one, every bondage, every affliction. We bring it now to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that it will be done and away with. It will be part of the old life that has already died with Christ. Father, we seek your heart, Lord, to live a new life in Christ Jesus to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to live a life that is worthy of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we bring every bondage before you, we bring every sin before you, we bring every affliction before you, and we pray that all of this will be broken at the feet of the cross of Jesus. And we pray, because of Easter, Lord, that you will fill us with the resurrection power to transform us to be like your son, Jesus Christ, in the way we live, in the way we speak, in the way we think, in the way we live out our calling in Christ Jesus. Father, we praise you and we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. In response to God's word, Let us stand to sing the closing hymn. 